During COVID, how was excess mortality experienced by minorities? How does treatment of heart attack vary across high-income countries? What's the impact of ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, in people with COVID-19? And should we be screening for COPD in people without symptoms? That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, I'm going to turn right to the BMJ. This is a look at ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation in people with acute COVID-19. This is something, of course, that lots and lots of people I've seen, many patients who've been on this during the pandemic. And this is a pretty exhaustive look to this point at least, of what is the impact of ECMO? Should we try to expand resources in that direction for more people? This is a study that looks at data from a lot of different places, 30 countries, five continents, 7,300 plus adults admitted to the ICU with either clinically suspected or laboratory confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection. They used ECMO in some of these folks when their oxygen saturation dropped. Then they compared that with conventional mechanical ventilation without ECMO. And their primary outcome measure was hospital mortality within 60 days of admission. 844 of them, or 11.5%, were put on ECMO. They found that ECMO was most effective in those patients who were younger than 65 years of age and also were put on ECMO during their first, like at the beginning, rather than later on in their clinical course. The more trouble you had with your oxygen level, the less likely you were to really benefit from ECMO, especially as time went on. ECMO, of course, very intensive, very expensive intervention to employ and trying to determine who really is going to best be able to benefit from that is important. For those individuals that may not be familiar with ECMO, for people that have severe lung injury, as occurs in this particular case due to COVID, and can't get oxygen to their blood, it takes the blood from the patient, it routes it through a machine in which oxygen can be supplied to the blood and it's returned to the patient. Here's the major issue I have with this particular study. As you mentioned, it's observational, and there's already a bias towards who would get on ECMO. If you think the person is so sick, they may not benefit from it, they wouldn't get on it, and hence they would fall into that category that have mechanical ventilation, they would do poorly. There's no mention in this particular trial of the two groups, how they compared those that were on ECMO versus those that weren't on ECMO in terms of their comorbidities and other similarities or disparities. This is, in my opinion, a hypothesis-generating study. It doesn't prove that ECMO is beneficial, but suggests that it may be. We need to compare comparable groups. Now, you're right. If you are going to try something like this, you might think, gosh, it would be the people that would be most likely to tolerate those under the age of 65 or those that are started on it early. But again, this particular study, because it isn't a randomized trial, really doesn't answer the question in my mind. More to come. Which of yours would you like to turn to? Well, since we're in the BMJ, let's talk about the other study, the variation in revascularization, percutaneous coronary intervention, or bypass surgery, and outcomes in individuals that presented with an acute heart attack in six different high-income countries. This was a cross-sectional study that looked at how people did in the United States, in two provinces in Canada, England, the Netherlands, Israel, and Taiwan. And I looked at people over the age of 66 that were admitted with a heart attack over a period of about seven years from 2011 to 2017. 
You'd think that if treatment was known and you had high-income countries, they would all have very similar types of treatment. What we found is there's a huge variation from country to country. For example, percutaneous coronary intervention ranged from 37% in England to 79% in Canada and 72% in the United States. Same thing when you looked at bypass surgery. It was about three times more likely to happen in the United States than in the Netherlands. And then when they looked at mortality, death within one year of admission ranged from 19% in the Netherlands to 28% in the United States and even 32% in Taiwan. Unfortunately, this study doesn't tell us why there's such a huge variation in use of these procedures or why there's a difference in mortality. But what you can see from the study is that the use of procedures doesn't improve mortality. What are we missing in this? We're missing the patient level information. Were the people in the U.S. sicker? Do they have bigger heart attacks or do they have more underlying conditions? And that's why they ended up not having a better outcome. All I conclude from this particular study is there's a huge disparity, even among high-income countries. Of all the countries, the U.S. had the shortest hospital stay and the lowest readmission rate. Unfortunately, it didn't translate to a lower mortality in the U.S. population. Right. Isn't that interesting? Especially as we're moving toward this globalization and certainly information and training in all of these procedures is available globally. Yeah. There's no particular country that excelled in all of the outcomes. All right. So if you were addressing this, what would you say? Would you say that this is a call toward a need for more comprehensive data and standardization? Well, either some countries are underutilizing some procedures or some countries are overutilizing them. And what can we learn from these countries that have the lowest mortality? Very good point. Let's turn to JAMA Internal Medicine. And this is addressing the issue of what they call excess mortality from external causes during the COVID-19 pandemic and how those are related to racial and ethnic disparities. We already know that there were profound racial and ethnic disparities in COVID-19 deaths during the pandemic, but these are taking a look at other things. They use something that I was unfamiliar with, and I don't know if you knew about this particular database. It's called the Wide-Ranging Online Data for Epidemiologic Research, so-called WONDER, and I'm going to call it that if I use that again. It's a database from the CDC to look during the pandemic, how many additional fatalities did we find and were they related to this racial and ethnic bent that we're looking at in so many other areas right now? They cite that there's a couple public health crises that are going on in addition to COVID-19, and those are the opioid overdose epidemic and structural racism. There were more than 17,000 additional fatalities from these external causes. These external causes, homicide, suicide, transportation, and drug overdoses from March through December, 2020. Black individuals, highest estimated excess homicide deaths per capita, Overall external causes highest among American Indians and Alaskan Natives, lower than expected suicide deaths. With regard to excess transportation fatalities, we only saw those among Black individuals. They estimated these excess mortalities by comparing death data from 2015 to February of 2020. And then they looked at it after COVID and compared those two time periods. And that's how they accounted for excess deaths. Trying to tie this either to COVID or structural racism is a little bit more difficult. I'm not saying that it couldn't be due to it, but these are, again, relationships, and it doesn't actually prove causality. 
Oh, yeah. Well, I don't think there's any question about that. But there's also no question about the fact that these ethnic groups experience higher rates of poverty, unemployment, housing instability, food insecurity, and decreased access to healthcare, or simply choose not to access healthcare, as we've also talked about during the pandemic. Right. But we've talked before about with regard to opioid and drug overdose is that that is particularly hit Caucasians, for example. It's one of the few reasons why the lifespan over the last several years has decreased. That's due to opioid overdose. There's clearly structural issues that need to be addressed to provide health equitably across all races and all ethnicities. There's no question about that. And whenever there's a stress in the system, as occurs with COVID or any type of economic stress that actually exacerbates these yeah. And then finally, a look at your last one, and that's in JAMA. This is talking about screening for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or what we call emphysema, which still remains one of the leading causes of death in the United States. And it's known that about three-fourths of individuals with COPD actually remain undiagnosed. The predisposing factors for COPD are very clear. It's cigarette smoking and exposure to environmental smoke or inhalants. And in 2016, the United States Preventative Services Task Force reviewed the question, should it be screening for COPD in people without symptoms? And they said that there was no evidence that screening in asymptomatic adults resulted in improved outcomes. That was 2016. So fast forward, six years later, they look at the additional data and it's centered around three questions, whether a screening for COPD improved health-related quality of life or did it reduce morbidity or mortality in asymptomatic individuals? The answer was, there's no data that shows that. The second question was whether the treatment of mild to moderate COPD in these asymptomatic individuals could improve quality of life or reduce morbidity or mortality. And unfortunately, there's no evidence that treating these individuals, even if you could find out who they were, we don't have any evidence that the treatment actually improves outcome. And the third question is, are there any adverse effects of treating COPD in these people that are asymptomatic. And there is some observational data that suggests that putting some of these people on medications may actually lead to harm. Hmm. I'm guessing that at some point there's going to be some kind of molecular markers that are going to show us that somebody's headed in that direction. And it's potentially possible that screening that way might be helpful. Well, the screening will only be helpful if we have a treatment that changes the overall outcome. And we know what the primary recommendations are is to stop cigarette smoking and to prevent exposure to inhalants. And by the way, that should occur whether or not someone has COPD, because that puts those individuals at risk for COPD. We can say, of course, that everyone should quit smoking. Yeah, and there's no question about that. Again, we're not talking about people that have cough. We're not talking about people that have frequent bronchitis. These are oftentimes early symptoms of COPD, and those individuals should be screened because we know that if they have those symptoms, the treatments can delay or decrease the number of exacerbations and also decrease the decline in lung function. So those individuals' symptoms, they should actually be evaluated. Okay. On that note then, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.